Well, most of us hate to wait, don't we? Whether it's sitting in traffic, stuck at a light, standing in line, it could be staring at a computer screen as it starts up or waits to download something. Now, those things are really trivial when you compare them with things where the stakes are higher or the seasons of waiting are longer. Sometimes it's weeks, months, even years where we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. Could be that we're waiting for a loved one to get better or news about a loved one. We might be waiting to meet that special someone, or it could be for a spouse to make the changes that we think they need to. It could be that we're waiting for a child. And if we're so blessed with a child, the waiting isn't over because then we're waiting for them to grow up, to graduate, to get a job, to get their life together. It could be that we're waiting for a clear career path. Some of us are waiting for things on the other end of that spectrum, the other end of life, like where maybe we're waiting to retire and the rest that we think that will come with it. Others of us are waiting for something beyond that, the life beyond our one here on the earth as we wait for Jesus to come back for us. As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 1, we're going to see that the disciples, the apostles, were in a season of waiting. As we look at Acts chapter 1, you'll recall that last week when we began this series, we saw in verse 6 that they were waiting for the kingdom to come. As they asked, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And right before that, we saw in verse 4 that they were told to wait. Jesus said to wait for what the Father had promised. Now, God's promise, as you recall, was for the Holy Spirit. God promised that he would send his spirit to come as Jesus would, was ascending and leaving the earth, the Holy Spirit would come. And the reason the Holy Spirit was coming was to give them power, to empower the, the disciples to do what God had said, as we saw in Acts 1.8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And now as we pick up the story in verses 9 through 11, it says, And after he, this is Jesus, after Jesus said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men, white in clothing, stood be beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, having just witnessed Jesus ascending into heaven, here the disciples are standing there. I mean, imagine it. We, we live in a day and age where we see birds in the sky. They saw that in their day, but we see helicopters and balloons and planes and rockets go up all the time. That wasn't happening. And they're standing there. They've just watched Jesus ascend into the sky. And so they're standing there gazing into the clouds. Their mouth is open in wonder. And they're wondering, is, is he going to come back down? I mean, we know what goes up must come down. So they're like, and, and, and as they're standing there staring up, Verse 9 tells us, he was lifted up while they were looking on in a cloud, and it received him out of their sight. As Jesus ascends here, the verb form used to describe it's in the passive form. And what that means is, Jesus did not do like a Superman and just launch himself up into the sky. What, what happened here is that it was God the Father who received him into heaven. 
It's like the resurrection, which was brought about as, as God raised his son back from the dead. And it was empowered by the Holy Spirit as these things are taking place. And as this ascension of Jesus is mentioned, we find it in several other places in the scriptures. First Timothy 3.16 tells us he was taken up in glory. And in Acts chapter 2 and verses 33 through 35, we're told Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. Now, we can, we can try to picture the scene. We can imagine it with all of the Hollywood special effects like we see in our day. But there are no details that are given here other than the fact that there is a cloud. Now, the cloud isn't mentioned to tell us this was the heavenly elevator that took Jesus up. Rather, as you read through the scriptures, when you see the cloud uh, associated with God, it speaks of his, his presence of his Shekinah glory. You, you remember that when Moses went up onto the mountain, it was veiled in this, this cloud. The glory of God had, had descended upon the mountain. We see it when the tabernacle and temple was indwelt by the Spirit of God at the dedication where the, the cloud was so thick, it says they were driven out of it. We, we see the cloud mentioned in, uh, in Luke chapter 9 where there was a cloud that covered the mountain at the transfiguration. During the Exodus, God was present in the cloud and the pillar of fire as he led his people through the wilderness. And when the time comes for Jesus' return, Luke chapter 21 verse 27 tells us, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. As the disciples are standing there gazing intently into the sky, verse 10 says, two men in white clothing stood before them. Now, the word for white clothing uh, means a, a, a translucent brilliance. This wasn't just wearing your whites. This, this was just, it, it speaks of the glory. He's telling us these weren't merely men. They were angels. And as, as the disciples are standing there staring in the sky, suddenly these, these angels appear next to them. And the disciples kind of are staring up. The angels look at them, look up at the sky, and they go, Hello, hello. Anyone there? And the guys look at them and their eyes grow wide as they, they see the angels. And, and the angels say, why are you guys standing here? Men of Galilee, why are you gazing into the sky? And, and we're thinking, well, wouldn't you be looking in the sky? They're going, uh, we, we just, and and they, the angels go, didn't Jesus tell you guys to do something earlier? Didn't he tell you he was leaving? And, and what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go into Jerusalem. They're up on the mountain. Go into the city and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus already told you what was going on. He told you what you need to do. And they say this same Jesus that you saw, he's going to come back the same way. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the tape is going to be played in, in reverse. Have you ever been rewinding a tape, watching it as you've got the fast, and it's going, and they're not saying, well, Jesus is going to come back down just the way that you saw. When they say this same Jesus, what they're, they're telling them is, yes, just as you saw Christ in his physical glorified body rise up from the earth, he's going to return. This same Jesus in bodily form will come back in his glorified body. As you read through the Bible, you see that Jesus is pictured in heaven as being a, a lamb as if slain. His, his physical body still marks, bears the marks of the crucifixion. When we get to heaven, we will see our Savior in his glorified form with the marks. Remember last week we saw how Jesus told him, put your fingers in the holes in my hand, put your fist in the side. We're going to see that. 
And the, the angels say, Jesus will return again in physical form, in all his glory, just as you saw him leave. Revelation 1.7 tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Matthew 24.30 tells us, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now we see that some things are the same, but some things are also different. When Jesus returns, remember as he ascended here, you just have the 11 apostles. It's a small, intimate group. But when Christ comes back, it's not going to be a private event. It's not going to be a small group. Uh, in Luke 17, 23 through 24, we're told, they will say to you, look there, look here. But do not go away. Do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and it shines to the other part of the sky, so will be the Son of Man on, in his day. Revelation 1-7 that we read said, every eye will see him. This will be a worldwide event where people will see the return of Christ. And when they see Jesus returning, he's, he's not going to be alone. He's not going to, he ascended by himself, but when he comes back, the armies of heaven are coming back. Revelation nineteen fourteen tells us, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Jesus is going to return with an angelic army and with the army of those of us who were believers who were raptured. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the end-time events, but uh, on September 27th, I, when we were going through a previous series in the seven churches of Revelation, I, I preached this sermon, Thyatira and the Things to Come. And in it, we looked at this chart, and that sermon and this chart are available for you on our website at waysidechapel.org. If you need a review or you missed it, you can go back and look at the end-time events. And as these end-time events are being discussed, there are two times where we know that Jesus, who is currently in heaven, will leave his throne in heaven. One is called the rapture. And the rapture is a time where we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will, we will, he will not physically return to the earth. So what is being talked about here, the return of Christ, is not the rapture. That is a time where he will come in the clouds, and those believers who are on the earth will be caught up, raptured, the Latin word rapturo, to meet the Lord in the air. What is being spoken of is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is when he returns physically to the earth. In Zechariah 14.4, we're told, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will inaugurate the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, as we saw, the word millennial, uh, mili, is the Latin word for a thousand. And it is a thousand year, a literal thousand year physical reign of Christ where he will be seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. This is the kingdom in verse 6 that the disciples were asking about. Lord, is it at this time that you're going to establish the kingdom? They were looking forward to that, that messianic time on the earth where the Messiah would be on the throne of David. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know. Only God the Father knows the time. And so this is what they are looking forward to, this millennial kingdom. 
Now, last week we saw in verse 7, God said, it's not for you to know these things. But uh, as we talked about then, many of us want to know these things. We want to know when is it going to happen? When will the kingdom come? As we watch the world and and all of the the horrific things like what just happened in Paris and in Beirut, just the last couple of days, we go, God, when? When are you going to bring about justice? When are you going to wipe out evil in the world? And what God says is, there is a time coming. I know the time. I know the timeline. And he says, what you as my people, believers on the earth, need to be worried about not, is not so much the future kingdom as being about the king's business right now, about going out and sharing the good news of the gospel, about being salt and light in the dark and dying world in which we live. That's what he told the disciples that they were to be doing. And he told them that they needed to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit that would come. Now, as believers living today, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we go further into the book of Acts, we'll talk about how things are different for us. As believers today, we are given the Holy Spirit, where in the past, the Holy Spirit was only given to unique individuals, kings, prophets. It could be withdrawn. But as Christians today, those living in the church age, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, we live in a day and time where God is at work in different ways. And we have been given the gift of the Spirit already. Now, they were those who were waiting. And when it comes to waiting, many of us think in terms of waiting as something that we do to get what we want. Isn't that how we think of waiting? It's what we do to get what we want. Christmas is coming. And many kids will see the tree go up. They'll see presents under a Christmas tree. And, and their idea of waiting is torture, right? Right? They see that present, they see that box, and, 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 and they just can't go, how many more days until I get to rip it open? And that's what waiting is for many of us. We think of it in terms of what we do to get what we want. But there's a deeper dimension to waiting. It, it's, it's one that is part of the process that God can use uh, to grow or develop us to become what he wants us to be. God told the disciples to wait because he says, I want to grow you. I want to develop you. I want you to be something which are to be witnesses. Remember that? He said, you will be my witnesses. Now, they already had knowledge. They had already seen Jesus. They had already done uh, some witnessing about who Jesus was. But what Christ told him is, you're not yet ready to do all that I need you to do. You don't yet have the power that will be needed to accomplish this worldwide task of spreading the gospel. And so he says, you need to wait because I I want you to be my witnesses and I need to equip you with my spirit. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. It's, It's like what happens with a pregnancy. Everybody's excited. Everybody wants that baby to be born. The mother most of all. As she gets later into the pregnancy, there's that, that idea of how many more days I can't wait for this baby to be born. And, and while everybody wants the baby to come, we know that if we fast track that process, if things happen too quickly, the baby doesn't properly develop and there can be complications. And as we wait, sometimes what God is saying to us is, I know you're eager for something to happen. I know you want to get on to this next chapter of your life. You want to see something happening. But God says there is a process. And, and, and you, you have to slow down sometimes. You have to wait. As you read through the Bible, you see it's full of those who went through seasons of waiting and development. One example is Moses. 
Moses, as you'll remember, grew up in privilege there in Pharaoh's palace. But then uh, God had a, had a plan for him, not to be the future king of Egypt in Pharaoh's house, but what he said is, you will be the one who will lead my people out. And, and Moses had to go through a time of being led out of Egypt. He had to go into exile, and he went across a desert. And he spent 40 years on the backside of a desert herding flocks. God had him waiting. God was growing, developing him. And when the time was right, he brought him back to Egypt. And he brought him back to lead his people out at the Exodus. Joseph is another one that found himself seemingly forgotten and forsaken. Earlier this year, we went through a series in Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. And you remember that he was a man that had to wait. He, he eventually was given a place in the palace in Egypt, but it didn't come overnight. David, who became king of Israel, was another one who waited. He was a small shepherd boy. He was called in uh, out of the fields. He was anointed as king. And did he go right into the palace? <laughs> God said, David, go back and keep the sheep right where you were. And as David is out there in the wilderness herding sheep, knowing, hey, I'm the next king of Israel, we would be running down to the jewelry store trying on crowns. And, and David was told, go back and keep the sheep, sleep in the field. And then David was taken from the field. He, he eventually went into the palace, but it wasn't as king. It was as a servant to Saul, the current king. And there as a servant, David was given glimpses of what it meant to be the king. He was in training before he actually took the throne. As we get further along in the book of Acts, we're going to see another man who was named Saul. It wasn't King Saul, but it was the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, the persecutor of the church, and ultimately he would become a pillar in the church. And what God did with Paul is he said, Paul, uh, after he had that encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and he came to faith and became a believer in Jesus, there was a brief period of a public ministry. But many people don't know this. Paul went away for three years. He was sent away to Arabia. Now, Paul was already a brilliant Jewish theologian. He was the most educated. He was, he was part of the elite religious class. And we think, what did Paul have to go away to learn? Well, he was in a period of waiting. We know it was three years from Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. As we're told, he was there for three years. As we read in Acts, it's going to say it was a matter of days. <laughs> days were three full years. Paul was waiting Those unseen times of waiting and preparation are critical to the growth that others see. An example of this is the the Chinese bamboo tree. I don't know if you've ever studied the Chinese bamboo tree. But somebody, I know y'all are laughing at me. Get a life, Roger, right? But the Chinese bamboo tree is interesting because a gardener will take and put the, the seed in the ground. And they'll water it, they'll fertilize it, and, and they'll wait for it to grow. Many of us know what that's like as we try to landscape our yard and we, we watch our efforts in, in vain. But the, the gardener with the Chinese bamboo tree, if he didn't know the process, would think, what is wrong? Because as he feeds and waters this tree, uh, it will grow about an inch. They'll see a little shoot come out of the ground about an inch tall. Year after year, they water, they fertilize, they care for it. And for five full years, all that happens is that little bamboo shoot of about an inch long is what they see. But then somewhere in the fifth year, 
that Chinese bamboo tree will grow over 90 feet in a period of six weeks. It's gone from nothing over five years to suddenly exploding in growth over 90 feet. Now, what was happening during that five years is that it was sending out roots. It was forming a structure. It was drawing nutrients from the soil. It was creating the foundation that would needed, be needed to support the sudden and explosive growth of that tree. When would you say the growth of the tree was taking place? Was it during the last six weeks when it shot up almost 90 feet? Or was it taking place during that full five years where nobody saw what was happening as the structure was being developed. You know, a mushroom can be grown overnight, but it takes years to grow an oak. Friends, would you rather be a mushy fungus or would you rather be a mighty oak? (laughs) God has us in a time of waiting and development for a purpose. God's not interested in making us merely mushy fungi, but he wants us to be mighty oaks. During those times of waiting, God is at work in the unseen areas of our life. He's developing our character and a foundation that will keep us standing when the storms of life hit. So many people, one of the things that I deal with as, as a pastor and trying to disciple, not just uh, people in the pews, but even the, the young men and women on our team, is, is they go, Roger, I want to be a big L leader. I want to, I want to you know, take the, the world for Christ. And as you think of a a big L leader, if the foundation is is smaller than the top, the collapse will come. Because it's very easy to want that, that, that seen time of growth. But what God does with us is he inverts the process. And he says, I have to build a deep foundation in your life to support the growth that will come. Because if there is, if there is that hidden foundation and character and ability, Uh, then the collapse is not as easy to happen. So many of us want this. We want to fast track the process. And what God says is, I'm at work in your life in ways that you can't see. I'm developing the foundation. I'm I'm giving you a deep reservoir that, that you can draw from. It's that reservoir that we not only teach others, but it's that reservoir for us in those, those drought times. Those of us who live in San Antonio know this well. We don't have uh, above-ground reservoirs like so many cities have. Our reservoir is the Edwards Aquifer. We draw our, our water from a deep basin that is unseen. And in those dry and 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 dusty times in your own walk with God, in those times where you are going through a, a desert experience, God says, if you have developed a deep reservoir, if your relationship with me is deep, those are the things that you will draw from. That's what will water your soul in the desert times. It's also what God uses, as I said, to teach others. God has taken me through several seasons of, of drought in my life. I think of them more as a refining fire, There are experiences I've had in my life that if I could have written the the blueprint for my life, I wouldn't have chosen it. The abuse that I suffered with my father, the years of infertility that I went through with my wife. I've shared with you both of those experiences. And that experience of infertility was, was a very hard one for my wife and I. As we wanted children, as we waited on a on a child, as we went through that waiting room, uh the months turned to years. And the years turned to more than a decade as we waited. 
Now, we went to doctors. We pursued uh, prayerfully some of the medical options. When those doors were closed, we pursued adoption. Those doors closed, we pursued fostering. We went to take classes. We did training. And God was closing all of the doors in our life. And the weight of those empty arms during that time were heavy. I watched my wife suffer as she wanted a child. She cried. I cried. We went through that time, and I wish I could tell you that I was always really spiritual, but I wasn't. There were times that I I fought with God on this, and I said, why, God, why? And in those times, what I learned was what Psalm 4610 means, where it says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. One of the things that God does with us in a time of waiting is he reminds us that we're not in charge. He is. Remember the disciples said, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus said in verse 7, that's not for you to know. It's not according to your timeline. It's not according to your plan. It's his. In my family's case, God had us wait 14 years before he blessed us with the first of three children. Again, it wouldn't have been the way I wrote the story. But I've seen how God has used that that time of development and that deep reservoir to minister not only in my own life and my wife's, but also that of many other families in the ministry now. And you may be going through a time of waiting as well. And as we're in that, that process of waiting, again, it's not always comfortable. It's not always fun. Sometimes we're, we're like a woman who was driving down the road when her car suddenly stalled in rush hour traffic. And as her car would not move, she got out, she put on her blinker, she got out, she put her hood up, and she's looking under the hood. And if you've ever had that experience, you're going, yeah, the check engine light came on, and I'm looking and saying, yeah, there's an engine. <laughs> so she's, she's staring at her engine going, what, what's wrong? And as she was trying to fiddle with a few things, there was a car stuck behind her, and the man relentlessly was honking the horn. In fact, he's just laying down on the horn. And the woman finally has had enough of it, and she walks back to this man's car, and managing as best of a sweet smile as she could, she said, look, sir, I don't know what's wrong with my car. I'm trying to figure it out. But if you want to go look at my car, I'll sit here and honk the horn for you. (laughs) And you know, some of us are like that, aren't we? We're going along, and suddenly life comes to a screeching halt. And we look, and we go, I don't know what's wrong. And, and we become that person in the car behind where we're honking the horn. Come on, God, hurry up, move it. And what we don't know is that God knows something under the hood needs to be fixed. And he's there at work in us. And all we're doing is honking the horn saying, move it. When are you going to do this? And what God says is, wait. We need to be like the psalmist who said in Psalm 62, verses 1 through 2. My soul waits patiently in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. There's a a late uh, Christian author, Henry Nouwen, who's passed away. And he was a big fan of the circus. And he writes of an opportunity he had one time to meet uh, a a troupe of uh, flying trapeze artists. They were called the Flying Rodleys. And he was sitting down for a conversation with the leader of the group who was named Rodley. 
And Rod Lay, as he was speaking, just said this. He said, as a flyer, the guy who, you know, launches off the, the bar, he says, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public may think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me within a split second of precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. Now, surprised by this, Nowlin said, you do nothing? Rodley replied, the worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them, or he might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. That's a great picture of what our faith is to look like, isn't it? We are the flyer and God is the catcher. And there are times that he has us waiting and the best we can do is simply stretch out our arms and trust that God is going to catch us. We have to let go and let God have control. Now that doesn't mean that while we are waiting, we do nothing. I'm not telling you that if you're in a period of waiting, you're to sit around and say, okay, pastor said I'm to do nothing. Next week, as we come to the next part of Acts chapter 1, we're going to see what the disciples were doing while they were waiting. If you look at verse 14, it says that they were gathered together with 120 people total, and they had a time of fervent prayer. God said he was going to give the Spirit. That was a promise he would fulfill. They didn't sit around saying, okay, whenever it had, they were They were praying, God, would you do it now? It's like many of our prayers, Lord, give me patience, and I want it now, Right? Jesus had ascended after walking the earth for 40 days. Pentecost, as we'll see when the event happened, wouldn't be for another 10 days. So for 10 days, they were in fervent prayer. Another thing that they did was in verses 16 through 20, they were studying what God's word said. How many times have you found yourself in a waiting room where you have more questions than answers? Has anybody ever been there? I have. And in those times, God says, there are two things you can do. One is you can talk to me. You can pray. You can pray for me to reveal things to you. You can pray for patience. You can pray for wisdom and strength. Whatever it is you need to talk to me about, I'm here. And we're going to see that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is it tells us even in those times where we don't know how to pray, the scriptures say, and God's spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for our own understanding. In those times, friends, where we don't even know what to pray, God is praying for us. Another thing we can do is we can search his word. Do you know that many of the questions I'm asked about, what is God's will for my life? I'm able to open the Bible to a verse, a chapter, a place in scripture and say, this is what God says. God has already revealed for us many of his answers. The problem is, is that some of us don't go to the instruction book. We don't go to God and say, what is it that you want me to learn? What is it you're trying to do in my life? So as we're waiting, as we're talking about waiting today, it doesn't mean passively sitting around where we have no part. Our part is like a farmer. A farmer is a person who goes out, he plows his field, he plants the seed, he fertilizes it, he makes sure it's irrigated to the best of his abilities. But he also has to wait. He waits for the crop to come. He's done his part. 
And then he waits for God to do his part. And that's what God tells us to do as well. If you're waiting, if you're in a period of of waiting, like for work, then sow seeds, pursue leads, check job sites, put a resume together, get it out, talk to to connections that you have, try to network and, and find those that might be able to open up a door. As my wife and I waited on children, I told you we prayerfully pursued medical options. We, we looked at what adoption would involve. We went through fostering classes. We were not sitting idly by. We were, we were working. We were waiting. Now, the challenge when it comes to, to being in the waiting room is this. It's learning how to be at peace where God has us, even as we're trying to get out. Being in the waiting room is where we learn to have peace where God has us while we are working to get out. I mentioned Joseph earlier. Do you remember Joseph's story? As this young Hebrew uh, boy was taken as a slave into Egypt, he was in a place of waiting, but he didn't sit back and do nothing. When he was in Potiphar's home as a low servant, he worked his way all the way up to be the steward of the household. Then he was falsely accused and he was thrown into prison. And as he was there in prison, he didn't sit around moping and and lamenting the fact of how he had been unjustly imprisoned. What Joseph said is, I may be parked here in the prison, but I'm going to do what I can to try to move out of prison. A, A moving car is easier to steer than a parked one. And so as Joseph was there in the prison, remember what he did? He served others. He made connections when the, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh were brought into the prison. He, he served them and he worked with them. And he said to the, to the cupbearer, when God restores you to the place in Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's palace, remember me. Put in a word for me with Pharaoh. He was in God's waiting room, but he was doing what he could to get out. And while Joseph couldn't see what was happening at first, he later found that those were not wasted days in that prison, that God had a process at work. As a young Hebrew boy, when he came to Egypt, he didn't even know the language. He learned the Egyptian language while he was in Potiphar's home. He learned about what it meant to be in the palace and the the rules and etiquette because you'll recall Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He He was an official in the palace. As he was there in the prison and as God connected him with another part of the inner circle of Pharaoh, the baker and the cupbearer, part of that that inner circle of bodyguards who would control the food and the drink that Pharaoh had, he learned more things about the palace and the etiquette. So when that moment came where God's promotion was sudden and surprising, as this Hebrew boy suddenly was promoted to the second in command now as a young man over all of Egypt, He didn't walk in blind and bumbling around and not knowing what to do. Just like King David, God had given him glimpses of the palace and had been preparing him for his new role. And some of us are in situations where things make no sense to us. We're waiting and we think it's wasted days and we go, where are you, God? And what God is doing is like the Chinese bamboo tree. He is at work in the unseen areas of our life, developing, growing, preparing us for that explosive growth, that sudden uh, change that may come in our life. Sometimes we want to fast-track the process. We want to save ourselves or others from having to struggle through something. This happened one day with a a man who uh, saw a cocoon where a a butterfly was, was emerging from it. And as he watched the, the slow, painful process of this butterfly trying to come out of the cocoon in the struggle, uh, he reached in his pocket and he took out a sharp pen knife that he had. 
And he went over and he very carefully uh, cut the cocoon open so that it would be easier for the butterfly to emerge, and it did. The, the butterfly was able to quickly come out of the cocoon. And as it did, it, it got up on the edge of it and it was sitting there. But as the man looked at it, he was, he was kind of surprised by it because it wasn't like any of the other butterflies he had seen. This, this thing had a, a bloated body. It had shriveled wings. It, it tried to crawl around. But after a short period of time, it, it fell over in exhaustion and ultimately died. Now, the man had a friend who uh, was an expert in the area of these insects, and so he takes it to his friend. And he said, I, I saw this butterfly trying to come out. He explained what had happened, and he showed it to his friend, and he said, I guess this one was deformed. And the scientist looked at the, the butterfly and asked a few questions again about, so you cut the cocoon, you got the thing out? Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, actually, I know you were trying to help, but you're the one who caused this butterfly to be crippled and ultimately die. And the man said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, God has designed the process so that as the the butterfly struggles to get out of the cocoon, uh, what it does is it forces the fluid from its body into the wings. And it it forces the wings to open and it strengthens them. And and that's what allows the butterfly when it emerges to be able to fly away. And he said, by doing what you did is you short-cycled the struggle. You ultimately crippled the butterfly and costed its life. How many of us as parents have ever wanted to rescue our kids? How many of us have ever wanted to to keep them from getting hurt or struggling through something? And so we we parachute in and we rescue them. Now, when our kids are babies and they need to be protected or we need to hold their hands to help them walk, that's one thing. But it's a pretty sad sight when you see an 18-year-old that still has to have mom and dad holding their hands to to help them walk. Or they're still babbling in, in baby talk. We have to let them struggle. We have to let them go through some of the hard things in life. Yes, they're going to make mistakes. Yes, we should step in and and prevent them from hurting themselves at times. But sometimes you just have to sit back and let them make a mistake because it's how they learn. It's how they grow. Just as a muscle develops through the the strain in the, the process, it's how they will grow. It's how they will develop endurance and perseverance and other things that are needed later in life. And God does that with us as well. We are his heavenly children. And there are times he watches us struggle. And as the heavenly father who loves us, he sits back and he says, my children have to grow and struggle and go through this to strengthen them and develop them for what is coming. As we learn to wait on God, that's a part of the process where we develop strength and endurance. We sang that song just a moment ago, Uh, about waiting on God as we wait on the Lord. You heard Michael read from Isaiah chapter 40 earlier. In Isaiah 40, 31, it tells us, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now I know there are times that we feel weighted down by the process of waiting. But in those times, what God is doing is he is developing strength and endurance in us so that we will be able to soar one day like an eagle. Ornithologists are those who study birds. And they tell us that birds have three methods of flight. One of them is where they flap their wings. I'm not going to do that for you, but uh, if you've ever seen birds, they flap their wings to counteract gravity. 
And if you've ever seen uh, a hummingbird, uh, they're, they're amazed by it. They say uh, aerodynamically those birds should not be able to fly because their body is so large and their wings are so small. And yet through a constant flapping motion, they're able to fly. Now, flapping keeps them in the air, but it's a lot of work. The second method of flying is gliding. Here the bird builds up enough speed and then it coasts downward for a while. It's much more graceful than flapping, but the problem with gliding is that ultimately gravity takes over. So they can, they can glide uh, for a little while, it's nice, but it doesn't last. The third way of flying is soaring. And there are only a few birds that are able to soar. Those that are like eagles. That have wings that are large and strong enough to catch the air currents. In order to be able to, to soar, you have to catch the rising current of warm air as the thermal winds go straight up from the earth. So without moving a feather, they're able to soar, to go to amazing heights in the sky, and they can reach amazing speeds. Eagles have been clocked at more than 80 miles an hour just soaring. And as we think in terms of this passage, what we're looking at today, the disciples were told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And as you look at the, the Greek text, pneuma is found numerous times, and it's translated three different ways. One, as it relates to God himself, the Holy Spirit of God, the pneuma. Another time that pneuma is used is to describe the wind, the wind. And the last one is, is the breath of life itself. On their own, the disciples could, could flap their wings. They could work really hard, but they would grow weary and not be able to do what God was calling them to do. But as they waited to receive the Holy Spirit, as they waited on God, which we're going to see in this book, they did. They will be given what they needed to soar, to spread the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, but even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that group that started initially with 120 people became a worldwide movement that to our day, in, in our day today continues. And you and I today are a part of it. And God tells us to wait on the Lord, that he wants to give us the strength, the endurance, the power that we need to be his witnesses. Not just to be those who spread the gospel, but to be those who, who live the life that God has promised to us. Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. As you think about your life today, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting on? Maybe you've been trying to flap your wings. You've been trying to do it on your own. And what God is calling on us today to do is to be those who wait for him, to be grown, to be developed, to be used by him in new and amazing ways. I want us to take a moment now to go to God in prayer, and I want you to think about your life. Some areas maybe that you've been struggling in today, it might be with your family, could be with your finances. It could be with some health issue. It could be help that you need at work or with someone at school. I want you to think about an area where you're waiting and to turn it over to God today and to ask him for his help in your situation. Let's just take a moment to talk to God in prayer, and then I'll close our time out. Lord God, as you are 
listening to your people, we know that there are many things going on in this congregation. And Father, we thank you that as believers, we're not going through it alone. We have the, the gift of one another. You tell us in Galatians 6.1 to bear one another's burdens. And so I thank you, Father, that there are those that can help us to carry the load, those like the prayer leaders at the front this morning that we can just come up and talk with and say, would you, would you help me to bring this, this need before the Lord? We thank you, Lord, for those around us in our small groups, our ABFs, our uh, places where you have us, other Christians who can support and encourage us as we go through the week. We thank you, Father, that while we have those people around us, sometimes they're not there or we feel like we're all alone, but we thank you, Lord, that in those moments we are not alone because you've given us your, your spirit. You are resident within us. You tell us in your word, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the spirit of God dwells within you? And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are resident within us, Holy Spirit, as, as the one who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for our own understanding. And God, sometimes we confess we don't understand what you are doing or why you are letting us go through things. But we know, Lord, you call on us to wait, to trust you, to let go and let you have control. And so, Father, as we do that this morning, we thank you for your word that tells us those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Lord God, would you help us to be those who put our hands into yours and allow you to strengthen and support us? Would we be those, Holy Spirit, who catch the wind that you provide? Would we stop trying to do things on our own? And would we let you help us to soar? Send us out now, Lord, as your witnesses in the world. Would you strengthen and encourage us? Would you uh, use us now for your glory? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.